If you had trauma when you were little, I'm going to guess that you have made some really bad decisions in your life, like strange self-sabotaging decisions about relationships or jobs or the way you express yourself when you're angry. And you know you're doing something that's not right because the people around you get that sort of concerned, judgy face at you. Do you know the face I'm talking about? But because of that agitation inside from past trauma, you can't see in the moment that you are making a terrible decision. So instead of pulling back to think, you maybe, I don't know, blame other people for judging you, thinking, you know, oh, it's just that they don't understand. And then you make the bad decision anyway to move in with somebody you just met or marry someone who treats you badly or go the other way and choose to isolate yourself or storm out of a job you actually liked and needed because your past trauma got triggered and you felt this urgent need to make that feeling stop. Have you done this? It is so hard. These are the decisions that change the course of your life. They can cut you off from what you want and keep you stuck and in danger of even more trauma. I call these trauma-driven decisions. You thought you were doing the right thing, but your trauma was distorting your perception. I'm Anna Runkle, also known as the Crappy Childhood Fairy, and I teach people to recognize and heal the adult symptoms of childhood PTSD. And if you've made some decisions that were driven by past trauma, I want to help you change that pattern and to look at how you know that's what you're doing when it's happening and teach you how to make better decisions going forward. Turn it around, even if you're still just in the early stages of healing from what happened to you. Okay, so a trauma-driven decision is when you choose something important without being in touch with what you actually want with your own values or with what is in your best interest. Because what happens in the moment you have to make the decision, you're thinking, oh no, I'm trapped. Or, oh, I better take whatever I can get, or I'm gonna end up alone. Or you submit to pressure from other people to make something like a financial decision that you know on some level is not a good idea. Think of balloon mortgages. Do you remember those? Like back in the 2000s, this happened a lot. You could buy a house and the payments for the first few years were miraculously low, like half what you'd expect because the interest rate was super low, which makes a huge difference early on in the repayment cycle. But right there in the fine print, and you know, it's not like they don't tell you to read the fine print. There's this fact that at three years or five years or whatever, the interest rates are gonna go, go up, maybe way up. So coded into the monthly payments is the probability that they will balloon. They'll go way up. And for a lot of people who maybe went into mortgages at the low rate with a vague feeling of like, oh, I'm sure I'll have enough money when the time comes. Well, they didn't and they lost their houses. And that's what happens around a lot of big decisions when you have CPTSD. You actually know cognitively that there's going to be trouble ahead, but you sort of balloon mortgage that thing. You get vague about the logical consequences and you go forward anyway, whatever the ultimate cost is going to end up being. Now, people who didn't have trauma, they'd say, no, that just doesn't seem too risky to me. But we look at the risk and we just kind of go blank and we go, I don't know, it seems like kind of good to me in the moment. Now, why do we do this? I'm going to speculate it's a brain thing. It could be dysregulation, which you've heard me talk a lot about. That's the chaotic state that you may have experienced when something triggers you and you might feel flustered or your mind might go blank. And sometimes in dysregulation, you'll react with really strong emotions or even emotional numbness. 
and a lot of systems in your brain and nervous system are going slightly out of sync when you're dysregulated and it's affecting your mood, your thinking, your physiology. And in particular, it can complicate your thinking when you're making a decision. And this is from a study out of the University of Wisconsin. I'll put a link to that in the description section below. But it turns out just the stress of making a decision can short circuit your reasoning and make it really hard to give appropriate weight to the risk involved in the decision that faces you. You can't see the downside of it, not accurately anyway, not in the moment. And at the same time, the stress of the decision heightens your emotions. So let's say you're on a first date and you know you don't want to rush in one more time to another relationship, but just the act of trying to decide what to do at the end of the evening can shut down your ability to evaluate risk and increase the emotional intensity that's telling you, yeah, why not? Just you gotta live, right? There's nothing to lose. <laughs> and this can apply not just to dating, but to all kinds of decisions that you make to buy an expensive TV or to give your boss a piece of your mind or to tell a little lie about something. In the moment, it seems like no big deal, but with CPTSD, your normal sense of what's a good idea and a bad idea is shut down. So you can't sense the potential consequences, not really. From the outside, it looks like plain old impulsiveness. And you know, that accurately describes what it is, but from the inside, that's not what it feels like. And I want you to think about these feelings because it can help you to learn to notice when you're, in, when you're kind of in a state where you could be making a trauma-driven decision, and then you have the opportunity to pause and pull back and get a reality check before moving forward. And that's really important because with CPTSD, we can make major decisions, not because they're best for us, but because our trauma was distorting things and driving us. Anger does it, shame does it, hating ourselves and wanting those feelings to stop can do it. And when that sadness and emptiness of CPTSD are just burning in you, and there's a desperation to feel better, well, you know, you grasp on to these decisions for what feels like survival or what feels like a burst of hope. Or it may just feel like the only chance you're ever gonna have to have that one good thing you never had, like owning a house or having a partner. I understand that, I've been there. I've made ridiculous sacrifices just to know the feeling of fulfillment for a little bit. It's like a feeling of dignity, some legitimacy, recognition from other people. You know what, I am somebody. And you know on some level you're sort of like taking a shortcut to that, but at least it's something instead of nothing. And at least you're trying. So when you're in the process of making one of these bad decisions, it's destructive, but it doesn't feel destructive. It can feel like, an, like a leap of faith, like, an, like a gesture of hope. So sometimes the trauma-driven decision is to say terrible things to people. It seems so necessary in the moment. So you say something hurtful or you decide never to speak to somebody again and it hurts you more than it hurts the other person usually, but make no mistake, it is hurting other people. It can, and it especially hurts people who depend on you. So let's go over the ways that you can tell when you just might be making a trauma-driven decision rather than a good decision. I'm gonna give you a series of signs that you can notice that it might be happening, and then I'll give you some possible actions you can take so that you can be clearer before you do anything final. Okay, the signs you're making a trauma-driven decision. You are telling yourself that a situation you're about to get into may be bad, but you're rationalizing it by telling yourself that without this relationship, no one will love you, or no other place will ever hire you, or no other landlord will ever rent to you. And this is what I call crap fit. That's a word I made up for when we 
fit ourselves. We get too good at it, fitting ourselves to unacceptable people and situations. And I'll put a link to a video about that in the description section. But when you're crap fitting, you make decisions to go into something that doesn't work or to run out on something that you actually need, that you, that you like, that's a good thing in your life, a job, a relationship, a friendship. And you do it out of anger or shame or pride or panic, or you do it to make someone just, you know, see how it feels. Have you ever done that? Okay, next one, and this is the ultimate trauma-driven decision, is when you're thinking about hurting yourself in some way. That is not a rational decision, it's driven by trauma thinking. And if that's happening to you right now, don't even watch the rest of this video. Just reach out to a person who can help you, not a YouTube channel, like a professional. And if you need that, if you need online therapy, for example, I have a link for that in the description section too. And if you're thinking dark thoughts as well, this would be a good time to say, please don't post those thoughts here on my channel because one is, this is YouTube, like people can't really help you with it. But also when you have self-harming thoughts, it hurts other people who read them, who are exposed to them. Dark thoughts are very contagious. And I'm just gonna ask you to like really support everybody in their healing here by taking dark thoughts to people and sharing encouragement here on YouTube. Now, I'm, I'm not the person to help you in a crisis. I'm here to teach you stuff, but I'm not the person to help you in a crisis. There are people who can do that for you, and I want you to have that if that's what you need. Okay, the next way you know that you're making a trauma-driven decision is when you're in a situation where you feel pressured to do the thing that other people want or another person wants, because you're not yet strong enough to say it's not what you want. Now, sometimes this is people pleasing or sometimes it's just confusing about what you want. CPTSD can make it kind of hard to hold that knowledge when you're in the presence of other people and in a scary situation and wondering, you know, just trying to make them happy and not create conflict. And if you think you don't deserve to have a voice when you're making decisions with someone else, that could be trauma talking too. Okay, next one. You could be making a trauma-driven decision when you find that your standards for what's acceptable are going all over the place. So one day you say, I'm not gonna tolerate that, you know, somebody calling me names or something. And the next day you have some reason why this time it's okay. We've all done that, right? But that's a sign. If your standards are not stable and you're not clear what they are, pause, you might be making a trauma-driven decision. All right, next one. You're accepting unacceptable things with the rationale that in the future, you'll start requiring something better, or in the future, the other person will change, or in the future, you will change, or you'll have different choices. Possibly you will, but when you're counting on something unseen like that, you could be making a trauma-driven decision. All right, next one. When you're thinking about making a tough decision, you find yourself avoiding talking to anyone because you suspect or you know that they're gonna see right through it and they're gonna call you out on it. So either you hide or you lie or you omit little details to avoid their judgment, right? Basically because you're ashamed because you know the decision's not a good one, you know on some level and you know they're gonna see it. So when you find yourself doing this, here is what you can do. One, you can write down what you really want in your life. Don't get vague about this. Don't omit things just because they seem impossible. You can keep this as a reference when you're feeling stressed and dysregulation and pressure is coming on to that you have to make a fast decision about something and tempting you towards accepting less than you really want. You can reference what you wrote, all right? 
Two, you can slow down your decisions. People with CPTSD just do better when they have time to consider big decisions, especially if emotions like fear or lust or anger are just running high. Three, you can run decisions by a trusted friend or mentor, somebody who's not affected by your decision, in fact, would be ideal. And it needs to be someone who has some wisdom about life and who has your best interests at heart. Four, you can do some research on your options. This is called due diligence. You can get online, you can get some information, you can ask people who might have faced this decision before. What did they do? Why did they decide that? Do they see any downsides to the options you're considering? You know, you don't have to take their advice, but you can hear it. All right, five, when someone else is involved in your decision-making, you can muster the courage to express your concerns about going forward. So sometimes, when two people are really excited about something, there's this kind of magical thinking that comes on and everybody's afraid to break the bubble. And when that's happening, it only takes one person to say how they really feel or what they fear. And the bad part of that magic vanishes and it leaves behind the real part. And that is the part you want. You want the real part. If speaking the truth bursts the magic, it's not magic. It's delusion, really. Reality is where you want to be. All right, six, if you have to make a big decision alone, you can try thinking of someone in your life, living or dead, who loves you and cares about you and ask yourself, given what I know today, what would they tell me to do? Or what would a person who doesn't have CPTSD do? Is this something that needs more time maybe for me to figure out whether it's good for me? Is this, is this good for my children? I always had a theory that what was good for my children was good for me, so. Seven, while you're thinking it through, check in with yourself. Some things you can ask yourself are, is there something I know, but I'm trying not to see? And think about those things that you really want in life. Are you choosing next steps that still keep those options possible? Or are you canceling what you really want by the choice you're making? Is there anything you don't like about the choice you're considering? If the things you don't like were to never change, how would you feel about that? What would that mean for you? And finally, with any choice, that worries you, think for a moment if you're still able to make a different choice. With that choice that worries you, visualize what steps you'd take and what it feels like to change your mind and do the other choice. You don't have to change your mind, but just kind of think it through. Like, what would it, how would I step back from this and do the other thing? Or just not do this thing? And kind of rehearse that and make friends with it so that it remains not a scary place you can't go, but an actual option that you can use if you decide that it's best. Okay. Now, one great thing about healing trauma is that you have choices. And that means when you make a mistake and we all make mistakes, it's part of healing. You'll have the ability to see it and do something about it and get back on your path faster than you used to be able to do. A lot of what you've been told about how to heal and what works for changing your life just isn't true. Too many people get stuck in their trauma because they think something outside of themselves, you know, society, parents, ex-partners, events that happened in the past, that those are the sole cause of problems today. And the truth is, you've got to hope that's not true because there's very rarely anything you can do about the past or about the way other people have behaved. So if you're waiting for those things to change and outrage is building and you're falling into despair, I have great news. Your healing doesn't come from those things. It comes from things you can change. 
And if there's anything you're destined to change about society or if a confrontation with the people who hurt you is in the cards, then you healed is how that power within you is going to get strong enough that you can take those problems on. But you in the middle of your trauma reactions, I'm going to be honest with you. Active CPTSD is such a vulnerable state. There's distorted perception undermining you. There's emotional dysregulation undermining you. There's almost always a lack of reliable emotional support from people around you. That's part of why you have CPTSD, but it's also a symptom of CPTSD. It drives away people you can trust. So my trauma healing began with a huge paradigm shift. The old broken way that I saw the nature of the problem and the nature of the solution totally shattered in a period of a few weeks. And a series of traumatic events threw me into a deep trauma reaction. And me doing everything you're supposed to do about trauma threw me even deeper into a trauma reaction. I don't blame anyone, but I was trying to operate and navigate solutions from a set of beliefs that weren't true. And when your beliefs are true, how you know is they work. When nothing is working, it just might be pointing to, you know, there's no nice, nicer way to say this. It might be pointing to lies. There are lies in your belief system, things that lots of people believe, but that aren't true. So things that you might even have been told to believe by experts, or you were bullied into conforming your beliefs to what you were supposed to believe. That might be what's operating when things aren't working for you. But if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So I had a belief system meltdown like that. By luck, when I was at the lowest point in my life, an acquaintance who saw I was going down showed me a way to soften the hold of my old beliefs and to let in some sunshine, some truth. And I woke up and about half my trauma healing happened in a day, just like that. And it was such a marked and sudden change that the therapist I used to see at the time was sure something was seriously wrong with me. I was serene. I felt okay about things. I felt confident and excited about the possibilities in my life. That was really out of character for me back then. And here I am almost 29 years later to say there very clearly was something right about me at last. And I broke out of the lies that governed my life and I'll tell you what I did instead. So people say I'm tough love, but I'm telling you nothing changed in my life until I learned and accepted these 10 truths. One, when it comes to your past trauma, no one is coming to save you from the effects. You'll have to seek that out. So don't just suffer through your life, saving up your problems for weekly appointments with someone who's supposed to know what to do. Even if you have access to a therapist and even if they know how to help you and you actually feel better, you are going to still need tools and awareness that you are in charge of it. It's you who will be recognizing your trauma reactions and devising how you'll change the pattern and then working every day to fine tune and integrate those changes. You are sovereign over your healing. Second thing, second truth, therapy isn't the only way to heal from trauma. And for some people with CPTSD from childhood, talking about trauma only makes it worse. Our culture says that talk therapy is the way to deal with this kind of problem, but many people's experience feeling like it does more harm than good is backed up by recent research. There's a time and a place to tell your story and get validation and have that blessed experience of, of understanding what happened. 
But if talk therapy feels bad and doesn't seem to go anywhere, or if you're like the millions of people who can't afford talk therapy, I want you to know there are simple tools you can learn and use that just might make all the difference. They did for me, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But having a therapist isn't the only way that you can have emotional support. Things like 12-step groups offer support every day of the week with people who are likely to understand what you're going through and have experience. They do have walking the path all the way to healing. This can be a huge benefit whether or not you have professional help because peers who have healed and whose help you ask for can help you by teaching you the practical day-to-day -day tips that they develop through real life experience. And they can help you get the focus off other people who may have hurt you and get the focus back onto your own self-destructive behaviors. Some might call this calling you out. And maybe you see this as the opposite of support, but sometimes the most loving supportive thing someone can do is be straight with you. And this is something not all therapists can or will do for you. It can be a bit of a taboo for them to give direct advice or make moral judgments about what you're doing, what you plan to do. But getting called out by a 12-step sponsor after years of getting unconditionally supported by a therapist, it was exactly what helped me to stop my trauma-driven behaviors and move forward in my healing very quickly. So you might see in your own experience that you've needed both, and that may be true, but for someone traumatized as a kid, when you're an adult, so much of the problem in present time is the way that you might be re-traumatizing yourself. So that leads me to a third truth that has to be faced, which is that focusing on other people and society and the past drain your power. It's a helpless place because you're helpless to change the past and you can't change other people. Present time is where all your power to heal your own life resides. So healing the thinking, healing the reactions, healing the behaviors that traumatize and re-traumatize you, and in many cases that harm other people, Yes, people hurt you, and yes, there is value in telling your story and getting help to make sense of it, but now what? For many people, it helps them to know they're not alone and there's a reason for their struggles. Healing the thinking, healing the reactions, healing the behaviors that traumatize and re-traumatize you, and in many cases, harm other people. Yes, people hurt you, and yes, there is value in telling your story and getting help to make sense of it. For many people, it helps them to know they're not alone, and there's a reason for their struggles. But all that trauma wreaks havoc in your life, and all the understanding in the world isn't enough to straighten out your trauma-driven reactions and your self-destructive behaviors, right? It's now, and not in the past, and it's with yourself, not with the people who abused and neglected you, that that's what holds the potential for changing your life. It's you now. And once you make this shift, you can start to recognize your symptoms when they're happening and taking actions to create a trauma-free life. That's what works. Okay, fourth truth. Neurological dysregulation is the symptom underneath the vast majority of other trauma symptoms. You probably never got taught this, and you probably never got help with it. And this could explain why you've tried so many things that never worked. The truth is, until you learn to re-regulate, your healing efforts are likely to just kind of limp along. When you learn to spot dysregulation and quickly re-regulate, everything gets easier. All right, fifth truth. Research doesn't show 
a clear pattern of efficacy when medication is prescribed for CPTSD symptoms. Not only don't they help, but they can actually make it harder for you to re-regulate. Antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs might be necessary for you for other reasons, at least in your experience or in your doctor's opinion, but because our insurance system tends to push people suffering with trauma symptoms first to talk therapy, usually limited to 10 sessions, then when that doesn't work, refer them to prescriptions, a lot of people are getting dysregulated by the talking approach and then thwarted in their efforts to re-regulate because they're taking medication. So this is something you'll need to talk to your doctor about. It's a bad idea to change medication without medical supervision. But in my experience, staying sensitive to the feeling of dysregulation and then mastering re-regulation is super important, maybe the most important thing that you can do to heal trauma symptoms. So if medication you're taking or any mind-altering substance is blocking you, that's going to defeat the purpose of learning to re-regulate and healing your trauma. Number six, let's talk about the phrase self-medicating. This is a euphemism for the use of drugs and alcohol by people with emotional pain. Now, not everybody gets emotional relief from drugs and alcohol, but those who do don't usually get that beneficial effect for very long. So a word for trying to feel better might be self-anesthetizing or maybe self-sedation. Because medicine, self-medicating, medicine implies it heals you. And sedated people are seldom able to make the positive changes needed to actually heal their trauma. You know, it is part, it is part neurological, and then it's a lot of changes in your life. And that takes being present. When you numb your pain, I get it, it's what you need to do sometimes, but it's delaying the part where you feel the pain and pain has information in it that you need to know. You know, what's going wrong? Where does this suddenly go south for me? What's my trauma reaction? What versus what's a feeling that I actually need to act on? What is triggering dysregulation for that matter? And what is the moment before that happens? when I can maybe learn to put a little pause in and re-regulate before deciding what to say or how I'm gonna to respond to something. So if alcohol and drugs are part of how you're coping, there's a reason that your healing has been so hard and there's an easier way when you're ready for it. All right, seventh truth. There's no point in arguing with people that they haven't met your needs. You are the one who meets your needs. When you do a good job of that, you're better able to choose caring people and to have in your life, people who you're gonna have as friends or as a partner, and then it's not gonna be such a question of whether your needs are met. You meet your needs, and then from there, you can attract those caring people. Operating on the belief that other people are supposed to do that, meet your needs, just because you've become attached to them, it's an echo from childhood when your needs were supposed to be met by someone, but they weren't. In adulthood, caring and commitment happen rarely and they build slowly. So being angry at someone you've been dating a short time for not meeting your needs, um, as one of our members said recently, it's, it's like driving around wildly, expecting the other cars to keep you safe and then being mad that you crashed. So meeting your own needs is the strongest protection that you have also against romantic obsession. That is something that rises up when your needs aren't met and it starts with you. All right, the eighth truth. When you've ended up in bad relationships, the truth is most times the red flags were there on day one, but maybe you rushed in anyway. What caused that? 
an attachment wound, um, extreme loneliness that made it unthinkable to turn back no matter how glaring the problem was that you saw. Until you can heal that, that need to go forward anyway, the pain is going to keep happening. And this is normal for people neglected in childhood. Healing happens when you can slow down and stay connected and honest with people who are supportive of your healing process. Then you can develop the awareness and the guardrails that you need to stop making the same relationship decisions that have worn you down in your life so far. All right, the ninth truth is about how you slow things down. And though a lot of people don't want to hear this, the way to do that is by avoiding casual sex. To borrow from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I read a long time ago, I'm going to change a little phrase here and say that casual sex is the dubious luxury of untraumatized people. Now, maybe it's fine for them, but for people with attachment wounds, it opens the door to trauma-driven thinking and behaviors that can ruin the relationship and it can wreck your happiness. It can be very destabilizing. Traumatized people can have good relationships, but there's a lot of learning that you maybe didn't get from your family and you can make space to learn a better way by going slowly. All right, number 10, as painful as it is to realize that a lot of your trauma now is from you making trauma-driven choices, facing the truth is nothing to fear. It feels good to seek the truth of your situation, to see your part in it, and no matter how small, to heal that. Facing reality, it feels good, it's empowering, it brings peace. And sometimes you'll cry, but good cleansing tears bring relief. And if you need help with this process, that's what we do at Crappy Childhood Fairy. Truth feels good and you need to feel good. You do, you need it. Not years from now, but today. I've got a really direct question for you and it's a bit in your face, but it's such an important question if you're trying to heal from the effects of trauma in your childhood. Of all the problems you're still experiencing in your life today, how much of it is from the abuse and neglect that happened and how much of it is from trauma-driven behaviors that maybe started as a symptom but turned into a habit. Now, I know what this is like. I was drowning in life problems before I found a way to start healing from trauma. And I had to figure it all out myself and it took a long time. But when I look back, I can really clearly see that my complex PTSD made it hard to know the best path forward or to stick to that path. I couldn't control that until I could. But this is where all your healing power lies. Is It's in moving your focus to not on what happened to you so much as what you are doing now, good and bad. And what I want to invite you to look at now is the way your trauma wounds have gotten you in the habit of self-sabotage. And this is good to know because once you can spot it, you can change it, okay? So here are 10 common ways that people with CPTSD sabotage themselves. All right, number one, is because with CPTSD, it's easy to get emotionally dysregulated, we get these outbursts of anger, right? Do you do that? Where you're going along, you're having a perfectly good interaction, you like people, they're your friend, or maybe you're on a date, and then something kind of sets you off, and you can feel it like rising up in you. This is a CPTSD thing. It's emotional dysregulation. There's a neurological injury that means when something kind of hits you that's like, ah, it would, it would feel that way if you didn't have trauma. Because you have trauma, 
this stress reaction happens where your left front cortex starts going down. You can't reason very well and your emotions go up. What you would want when you feel offended or your feelings are hurt is some thinking, some feeling, right? With CPTSD, there's this reaction where the thinking goes down, the emotions go up, and you can have an overreaction. And when that overreaction is anger, you can self-sabotage. You can mess up work relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, family holidays. If, if you were traumatized as a kid, I can almost guarantee you know exactly what I'm talking about. So a way that we self-sabotage is that when that happens, we're justifying it. You know, we, it's very painful to admit that we did something wrong. Very painful because it doesn't feel like you made a choice about it. it. It feels very real in the moment that the thing that triggered you was this big and therefore your reaction was this big. But what happens with CPTSD is even something this big gets a reaction that big and people don't like it. It's a form of sabotage. So when you don't have that consciousness of what's happening, what are you going to do? You can't necessarily fix it. But as you heal, and that's what you're learning here, that's what I teach in all my courses and on the channel, is like how step-by-step step you, you can get that awareness together so that you can actually bring awareness when that, that trigger happens, that physiological reaction that starts pushing you into a emotional dysregulation, you can bring it back to what we call emotional sobriety. Number two is we give our emotional energy to people who are emotionally unavailable. In other words, they don't give any energy back to us. So that is a trigger that gets installed from a childhood where your needs aren't met. When your emotional needs weren't met, certainly if your physical needs weren't met, if you weren't loved enough, if there was no one to really like look you in the eye and hear how you felt about things and coach you through the little challenges that you were going through as a kid, what can happen is you develop this incredible tolerance as a coping mechanism to be able to just do life without anybody caring about you. You can see love where there is no love. That is a coping mechanism that saved your life when you were a kid. So it's very good that you have that. It's just not a good idea to have it now as you're trying to have grown-up relationships. You don't want to see love where there is no love. You want to be able to recognize somebody who's emotionally available versus somebody who's just like not into you, married, lying, on drugs. I mean, all that stuff, that's like, that's like, feels like PhD stuff when you're in the middle of CPTSD and having the kind of relationships that so many of us have. That's, that's what I had. But I learned, I learned workarounds to see the red flags, to give them time and space so that I could become aware of them. The big thing that prevents you from rushing in and getting all attached and giving all your emotional energy to people who are unavailable, and by the way, this is not just romantic relationships. There's friendships like this. There's bosses like this where you're just like going on the extra mile and, you know, they don't care about you. They're not going to, nothing good is going to happen in that job, but, you know, we get this blind spot to it, right? We don't know. So we're pouring out all this energy and when we don't get anything back, when it doesn't lead to a promotion or a relationship or a fun friendship and you're not invited to the party, you know, it just feels like a massive ripoff. And then, you know, it just feels like people did you wrong and you can't see when you still have CPTSD active, you can't see that there was anything that you did to kind of, you know, walk into that situation. All your power is in seeing where you walked in. Like, yes, there are people who will take advantage or there's people who just don't care. It's not, they haven't necessarily even done anything wrong by not caring when we're just like, oh, I'm giving you everything I've got. 
So we got to stop walking into that. We have to recognize it and sort of have continents, really, you know, to be able to like contain, contain our emotions and decide when we're going to give them and how, in what measure. That's a huge, important skill that can save you so much grief. Okay, a third way we self-sabotage is in, this is kind of related to the second one, in the way we get together with or stay with people who are abusive or who have major life problems that make them unfit for a relationship, like a big drug addiction, alcoholism. It's very, very common. This is the big way that trauma gets passed on to the next generation is through the relationships that result in children. Often they're not even committed relationships, right? But there's that inability to recognize a total like, you know, life destructive situation, go into it, try to build a life around it, and then have the floor fall out under you. That's what happens. That's what happens when someone is abusive um, or they're too far gone in an addiction that they, they, they can never show up for you. They can never provide for you. They can never meet your emotional needs. And so often um, you could end up living with them your whole living situation is dependent on them and they're not, you know, that it's nothing you can count on. It's nothing you can count on. Have you ever been in that situation? Abruptly homeless, abruptly homeless with children, pregnant, but no longer with anybody. These are, you know, mm, these are the types of things that we go through when we have that big attachment wound and the blind spot for what is a red flag and what is a green light, you know, just total confusion. And it does, it, it is very similar to that, the ability to like see love where there is no love, but it's more than that. It's an inability to predict how complicated and painful it will be to be with somebody who is abusive. There's this magical thinking of like, but I think if I change enough, if I'm good enough, they will change. I'll step up on my toes. They'll step up on their toes. But that is, you know, that, that doesn't work. I'll talk about magical thinking in a minute. Similar to that one is, we choose friends. This is number four way we self-sabotage. We choose friends that are more screwed up than we are. So I, I'm, I'm just like putting out there. I was certainly very screwed up and I've gradually gotten less screwed up. But I often had a more comfort with friends whose problems were even greater than mine, whose level of functioning was even lower than mine. And I've had a lot of trouble like recognizing like why. I saw that it was happening and gradually it changed, but I wasn't able to really see why. I wasn't really being that intentional about it. It was sort of a natural byproduct of getting healed in a lot of other areas of my CPTSD symptoms. But I think what it is, is there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of shame with growing up with abuse and neglect. There's a lot of stuff that sort of seeps into your identity of not being good enough. Um, and a discomfort that comes from hanging out with people who have their lives together, you know, who are basically nice people. There's something awkward, uncomfortable, embarrassing about it. And that's, that's what I'm going to say about it is I think it's shame. I think it's shame. And when the shame heals, you can have more comfort to hang out with people who are not only your equals in terms of, you know, how much they've got their lives going on, but even people who are aspirational for you, people who have really got their lives together and you can learn so much from them and uh, enjoy friendship with people of all kinds. Like that's the ideal, right? The shame has to go. All right. Number five form of self-sabotage is choosing jobs that don't really demand anything. And, you know, we all know why this is necessary. It's because when you have CPTSD, your focus and your energy are often going in peaks and troughs. 
you know, you do a whole bunch of good stuff and then you crash, a whole bunch of good stuff and you crash. And I have videos about this, but but basically we, we're, we're good, talented people and we get the urge just like anybody to like reach for something, put ourselves out there. But when we do that, that act of being out there on the edge of our comfort zone or right beyond it is very triggering. There's a lot of triggers there and it can look very easy to do. And of course we want to do it, but if we don't have good tools being out there, like sticking our neck out there, getting a little criticism, having something not go that well, uh, you know, not actually having an initiative succeed, it can just crash you and you lose all confidence and all energy and all willingness. Have you had this? So I, I made a video about it happening to me a couple years ago and so many people with CPTSD said, I get that too. I get that too. So the coping mechanism that may have been good at first, but kind of needs to change now is taking jobs that are not demanding on you, where you're never putting yourself out there. You're never risking criticism and you're never um, really learning anything because you're not risking anything. You're not associating with people who could teach you something. You're not putting yourself in that position where you could disappoint them. And I think there's this other energy that can come in there of like disdain, right? It's like, well, this is a stupid job and I just turn up and blah, blah. Well, if it's really stupid, the healed thing to do is to take another step, get to a job that's not stupid, that's meaningful that's challenging. Everybody has to do a journey on that. Like the first job you get in your life is seldom that job. Ah, sometimes, sometimes people are that lucky. It wasn't for me. I couldn't even get a job at McDonald's when I was a teenager. I tried. They wouldn't have me. <laughs> I still, I still bring that out like a badge of, you know, unfairness, right? <laughs> I wonder if they would hire me now. I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I want to try just to see if I can, but I like my job now. It's pretty good. But so getting a job where you're not challenged at all is a way to keep hating your life and stay stuck and not grow, but at least it keeps certain triggers out. And that's what happens in so many ways when we, you know, keep our life small like that is we're avoiding triggers. Yes, but we're avoiding growth. And when you avoid growth, it starts to get very depressing. So you don't want to do that. So the healed thing is to start doing jobs that are a little bit more of a stretch for you, you know, and have more to do with what you really want and where there's actual risk of failure. Like it's okay that many things that you'll try result in failure. That's okay and normal. And when you have tools, when you have healed a lot of the, your trauma reactions and you have tools for dealing with the feelings that come up, I'm always talking about this daily practice I do. That's where it goes. When I fail at stuff, when I put my foot in it, I'm right there. I do it every day, twice a day anyway, but I'm right there writing my fears and resentments and getting them out of my head onto paper and away so that I can carry on, so that I can still have inspiration and be motivated and try things or, you know, just take a rest and peace, but not be going, oh my gosh, why am I such an idiot? I can't tell you how many ways and times I've been an idiot. I've just, you know, I make mistakes all the time, but you gotta be free to make mistakes or you'll never get anywhere, right? Getting anywhere involves mistakes and fear and failure and getting back up again. It's a good thing. Number six is also about jobs. And this one is about getting in and staying in jobs that are demeaning, abusive, and draining to your spirit. 
This is really common for people with CPTSD. It's the same energy that gets into an abusive relationship romantically with a partner, same thing with a job. There are always jobs where you will get treated that way, but how is it that with your CPTSD, you're just like, doot, 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 doot. you find them, right? You find that person. And basically, if you look at it objectively, what's happening is you're crap fitting. You're fitting yourself to crap. You have this thing inside that when somebody treats you badly, instead of going, whoa, this person is not cool to work with. I'm not taking this job or I'm not staying. And instead, you blame yourself. You just go feel bad about yourself. You might feel all resentful at them and complain about them, but you don't leave. You don't leave. And the trouble is when you stay in an abusive or demeaning relationship or job, you might be thinking, I'm just gonna stay a little longer until you know I'm a little more got my head together and then I make my move to something better. It doesn't work that way. Abusive and demeaning situations drain you. They take it out of you. You are less likely to make a leap up afterwards the longer it goes on. So if you're in that kind of thing, you know, plan your exit. And I know, you know, with jobs, like it's not easy. You can't just like oh, I'm just going to go be unemployed for a while. That's a very hard decision for most people because, well, you can't, right? You have people depending on you. You, you have to pay the bills. But this is where you can double down and get ready and get ready to make your move. Do not accept that. Don't crap fit around work. It's a huge part of your life. So important to you becoming fulfilled and you having a role in the world and feeling a part of things. So let that be good. All right, the seventh thing that people with CPTSD do that self-sabotages is um, having an adversarial relationship to work or the boss. Um, it ruins your chances of advance, advancement. It ruins any chance of fulfillment and it ruins your income. But you see this a lot. This is kind of part of, you know, it's associated a lot with sort of a poverty mentality. I grew up very poor and there can be this very sort of anti-power, anti-money attitude that is not always about the money or the power that people who employ you have. It's a defense mechanism to try to cover up the pain and dread of like, I have fear that I'm never going to make it in this world. I can't handle this thing. I'm watching other people like figure it out. It's as if they got a memo and I didn't get it. I don't understand what everybody's doing. And then there's this like turning against the whole thing, an adversarial relationship. And so you get people who are like, they hate the boss. They're always trying to find the, you know, the way out of responsibility or to just get under the line. And, uh, you know, what a, what a miserable existence to try to do as little as possible to not get fired. It's such an unhappy way to do it. Work, work can be a joy. Even if you, your work is not well paid, if you're working with decent enough people, you can bring joy to your work. If there are interactions with other people, like, you know, I'm just telling you, like, the, your work day, this is your life. This is a day of your life, and you want it to have happiness. You want it to have meaning. You want a chance to express yourself. If you can do that interaction at work with a little bit of connectedness to people, a little bit of supportiveness to other people, you're going to get meaning, meaning out of any job, whether it's, you know, taking people around the floors of Home Depot or sweeping a parking lot or taking care of little kids. Like, there's always an opportunity to bring meaning to it. And if you can't do that, if your job is so unhappy for you that you can't do that, I urge you to get a different job. This is your life, okay? All right, number eight, we avoid and we judge people 
who have their lives together, who make an effort. Like, you know, I went to a high school that was a bit rough and I was in some classes where if you raised your hand like too much, uh, you would be shunned and ridiculed by some of the other kids. And so there was this big deterrent. And I often knew the answer. I, my natural inclination was to enjoy answering questions and doing homework. And I was like that. I like school. But I learned to let's like keep it under wraps. Just be cool, pretend I didn't know, be dumb, paint my nails in class, you know, fit in, just fit in. <laughs> and I'm really sorry I did that. I wish I had had the means or the parenting or whatever to get out of any classes like that. What a waste that is. And some of you went to schools like that too and, you know, didn't have a choice either. But we're here now, so we're going to start being different. We don't have to fit in with people who have that estrangement from good people, from people who have the answer, from people who try hard, from people who have ambition, right? And we don't have to blame them for our problems. There's an opportunity in connecting with those people. And I mentioned this before, there's shame there. A lot of times if you can heal your shame, you will be more comfortable with the people who, you know, have it together and are trying, trying to get somewhere in life. And those are good for you to associate with. You know, research shows that we, we're very sensitive to who we're around. And if they're kind of going places and having good values, we will match them. So try to hang out with the best people you can. Learn to be comfortable with people who are just a little bit more progressed than you, and you will go far. All right, number nine, we mistake the suffering that we've been through for who we are, all right? And sometimes we even regard our suffering as a virtue. I really discourage you from thinking this way. Your suffering is what happened to you. Who you are is who you are. And not to equate them and not to um, make yourself all about the trauma that happened or all about the wounds that you carry. I'm not saying be secret or hide it or be ashamed of it. Like there's a way to integrate it without putting it like front and center about who you are. So one of the things that I changed is I am, my, my, my mother was an alcoholic, also my father, and I have gotten so much benefit from being in 12-step programs where I identified as an adult child of an alcoholic. But there came a time when I just had to really uh, let that go as an identity. I'm not an adult child. I, I am Anna. And I am not defined by my mother's drinking. Who I am and what I'm about is no longer defined by what other people did or what happened to me. I'm defined by what I've got inside, both my, my difficulties and my strengths and what I do with those and all the you know adventures of my life, struggling, healing, doing something positive. That's who I am. I am not defined by what happened to me. When I do identify that way, it's self-sabotaging. It just, I don't know, when I, I, I just got to a point where I, and I'm not knocking it, like if that's where you are right now, that it's such a good way to understand, like, why am I the way I am? Having CPTSD, it's the same thing. I have it, but it's not what I am, okay? It's an injury that I have, but despite my injury, I am becoming more and more myself, more fully. I'm developing myself as a person. I'm increasing in my virtues and I'm diminishing my, my problems. That is who I am. And it's not defined by anybody else. My family relationships. I am a wife. I'm a mother. I am a friend. I'm an aunt. I'm a cousin. I have people close to me who really, really matter to me. And I play those roles, but but I am me, all the, the center of it is I am me and I am never defined by my trauma. And finally, the 10th 
the 10th way that, that people with CPTSD self-sabotage is using escape as a coping mechanism rather than working on themselves. We need an honest way to face problems. If you want to blame other people for the mistakes you're making in your life, for the ways that you're still stuck and struggling, you will always find friends, you will always find YouTube channels and internet spaces where people will absolutely help you blame other people, you know? That's right, men are pigs. Well, I remember that. I used to have friends like that when I used to struggle again and again in relationships with men. I had friends who would go, well, it's never your fault, Anna. It's always their fault because they're just bad. And luckily, I had the moment of truth to just say, but what's the common denominator? It's me, like something's going on. I'm choosing people like this, or I'm turning it into this. I had so much work to do to start to see how do I walk into this situation and how do I change it? And I'm just so grateful because the very first step of beginning to heal all of that, I had help, I had mentorship, I just like all these good things happened. When I could admit that I was making mistakes. I stopped blaming men for the problem that I had with men. And I stopped blaming people with money for the problems I had with money and so on. My life opened up. I found that I have this tremendous power to make change in my life if I can focus on the problems where I'm having a problem. I'm having a problem. And I have often been in a situation where my circumstances and other people were damaging to me. And when I could do something about that, I did. But there's so many times when maybe there's something I could do, but I couldn't, I didn't know how. But I always knew how to look within and go, what can I change about myself and become stronger? Because when I can get stronger inside, I can come up with a new response to the problems outside. So things that used to overwhelm me and defeat me, all of a sudden like a solution comes. Some of it, it's quite interesting. I just used to feel like people would take advantage of me and that rarely happens anymore because there's a strength in me that communicates something. I don't know if it's a vibe or it's a, you know, it's an energy that I have. It's a way that I talk. It's, it's a way that I set boundaries even when I don't even know I'm setting boundaries. But people just don't do that to me anymore. They take me more seriously. They treat me with more respect than they used to. And it's like this kind of positive cycle where when when you treat yourself with more respect and have some boundaries other people treat you that way and therefore you treat yourself that way and they do it and you do it and they do it next thing you know you're operating at a higher level not self-sabotaging so that's what i wanted to list for you these 10 ways that you might be self-sabotaging because this is where if you bring your focus you have the power to start making a very big difference in your life relatively quickly. And you might find that stuff that was previously beyond your control or a mystery to you why people treated you this way begin to change when you change the things you can. For people who were traumatized as kids, those Hallmark card sentiments all over Facebook about how very dear a good friend is, it can be like an arrow through your heart. And it's really normal with CPTSD to struggle with friendships. Maybe you haven't yet had a genuinely close friend who gets you and stands by you through thick and thin, or you have friends and you do things together, but you've never really felt like you could be yourself, like, like you were safe with them. And you don't know if it's because you chose the wrong friends or if somehow it's you. It's hard to face, but it's possible 
that your trauma-driven behaviors are part of why things aren't working with friends. And today might be the day, if you're ready to take a gentle look at this in the video I'm about to share with you, this could be the day that you begin to heal. One of the biggest reasons why people who grew up with trauma struggle to maintain good relationships is because of our own behaviors. Whether we want them to or not, we do things that push people away. I teach a lot about triggers, the way people and experiences can just totally dysregulate us and throw us off neurologically, physically, and emotionally. Now, triggers are important, but what's also important are the ways that we act when we're feeling triggered or when we're triggered and don't even realize it, and we end up hurting or alienating other people. And this makes me so sad. It's why so many of us have suffered so much loss. And we've often gone through our lives longing for connection and not finding it or alone and scared to even try anymore. And I'm here to say there is so much healing possible and I can show you how, because if you want to change any negative pattern, everything depends on your ability to see and change to find the little spots where you have some power to change how your life turns out. And this can happen when you lovingly, courageously shift your focus from what happened to you to how you're handling life right now, when you have a choice in the question of what happens next. Okay, behavior number one that can push people away, our loneliness gets leaky. Loneliness is like the number one symptom of early trauma. And sometimes it spills out into the way that we relate to other people. And it makes us seem, I hate this word, but needy. Some ways that this can show up when we're first getting to know someone, we dominate the interaction with our stories and our feelings. So for a friendship to blossom, there's got to be some give and take, talking, listening, talking, listening, caring about the other person and being genuinely interested in them. Here's another thing our loneliness makes us do. We sometimes confuse being open with other people with just, you know, spilling our pain. Have you done that? If you're just getting to know someone and you're bringing out all your trauma stories, and let's face it, we have lots of trauma stories and they've kind of crowded out a lot of the other possible stories we could be telling. But if you're talking about that stuff, as soon as you meet someone, you might want to catch yourself and decide to just pull back and set aside the sad stuff and then measure it out in little increments over time. It's totally important to share this part of ourselves with people close to us, but unless it's an established relationship with someone who cares about the totality of you, you run the risk of overwhelming people or freaking them out. <laughs> I know I did. And then they close their hearts to you. It's just too much. Now, one exception to that is when you're talking to people who are very traumatized themselves or who are in an altered state from drugs or alcohol or who don't care what state you're in because they're trying to get something from you. So pouring your heart out in that situation might lead to a connection of a sort, but this is exactly how we so often end up entangled with inappropriate or destructive people. We get very intense. The people who can handle it are the very people who are not good for us to be around. So be measured. Little bits of your story shared over a slow time frame will help you start to build authentic friendships. Now, you might also be leaking your loneliness when you do too much of the initiating of get-togethers. You call them, you text them, you've got fun ideas they might enjoy, but it's always you doing the asking. 
Now, if you know someone who's been depressed and wants a little encouragement, there's no problem with doing this. But in an equal relationship where no one's trying to help the other person, it's better to allow for reciprocity. You invite them to get together, then wait for them to invite you. Maybe they'll happily surprise you and be right there with an invitation very soon after the last time you got together. Or maybe you won't hear from them for a while. When people don't make an effort to get together, that is information. It's good for you to know about what kind of a friendship they're interested in and what you can expect. Like maybe not much of a friendship in that case and definitely not a romantic relationship. So when one person doesn't pan out into a reciprocal friendship, it's just time to meet some extra people, some new people, not to keep pushing invitations on the same person. Okay, second behavior that pushes people away. We get overly other focused. Do you know what I mean? We get very wrapped up in what the other person is thinking and feeling at the expense of what we are thinking and feeling. And this is one of those things where it always feels like no one should be able to tell that you're doing it because, hey, you're trying to be a good friend, right? But think about when people have done this to you, asking, how are you doing? Trying to read your mind, trying to fix problems that aren't even there. They're always kind of like pecking at you with this. It feels yucky, right? This is a classic fawning behavior. That's one of the major expressions of CPTSD, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And with fawning, it's like our whole beings get taken over by trying to read another person. And yes, this was a survival tool for a lot of us when we were little and trying to gauge our own safety in unsafe situations. But now the mode of behavior completely kills genuine connection. It's a form of being in our own heads, of not being present, of giving all our power to someone who has not even asked for our power. The relationships you want never require that you shut down or mentally flee the situation or give them all your power. And this is similar to another thing some of us do. When we feel rejected and hurt, but aggressively covered up by being cheerful, helpful, agreeable, no problem, this is what people who were abused as kids get way too good at. I call it crap fit. And I'll share a video with you about that at the end of this one. But going right into people pleasing when you're attacked, that's what it is. If someone's not treating you well, you can say something or you don't have to. And of course, you can always leave. But if some old hurt part of you responds to mistreatment by jumping in and doing a song and dance to show that, hey, you're not hurt, you're fine, you're cool, is there anything you can do? This is not connection. This is you playing a role. And if this is familiar to you, ask yourself if that's something that you're doing with any people in your life right now. Real friendships never require taking crap or abandoning yourself as a means to cope. Real friendships are made of you being present. You are present. That presence is one of the most remarkable things that begins to show up. I love watching that with the people in my programs. So many positive changes flow from there. Okay, the third behavior that pushes people away, it's having a lack of clarity about when it's just you meaning you have trouble accurately seeing your own role in problems, either blaming yourself too much or denying any responsibility, or in fact, the thought that you play any role just like makes you angry. Have you dealt with people like that? Either way, black and white thinking, I'm totally responsible, I'm never responsible, it's a way of checking out of reality. And people who are not in reality are very hard to connect with. So some signs that you might be doing this include you apologize too much. Have you ever had someone do that to you? But for something they only imagine had offended you and you're saying, please, you don't need to apologize. 
but they keep doing it and they keep doing it and they feel so ashamed. And it's not a good feeling to be either person in that. So if you're profusely apologizing all the time, and key indicator here is that the other person keeps insisting that you don't need to or seems uncomfortable, let it go. Just let it go. The same goes for putting yourself down, saying, oh my gosh, I'm such an idiot. I look awful. I don't even belong here. You don't mean it this way, but it can come off like, like you're begging for something. What's really going on is you're drowning in fear, of course, and healing this. That's what I teach in all my courses. But telling everyone the contents of this like trash can in your mind, it just can be off-putting. Now, sometimes people who already have a trusting relationship might confess to each other the doubts they have about themselves. But blurting your fears out every time you make a mistake is consciously or unconsciously, it's an attempt to get other people to make you feel less fearful. They probably would help you if they could, but they can't. So it just makes things awkward. Now on the other side of the, is it just me syndrome are behaviors where we're oblivious to the fact when something really is our fault, which happens, right? And this shows up when someone says they're bothered by something we did and we skip over hearing it or caring how they feel and go right into defensiveness or even blaming them. Everybody knows what this feels like and absolutely no one likes it. Now it's true that sometimes people are gonna blame you unfairly for a problem, but the thing about having CPTSD is our judgment can be a bit slow or off, so it pays to listen. Now I'm not talking about listening to abusers here. That's a whole different thing when someone gaslights you or attacks you for imagined offenses and they can't be reasoned with. Those are not friends, okay? We get really fuzzy on determining, is this person's criticism right now something that I need to hear and take seriously? And the answer is, as a rule, yes. If you like and respect someone, it's only fair to hear what they have to say. Now, healing our childhood PTSD involves a balancing act between being open to hear things like criticism, but not instantly taking it inside our innermost heart and making it our truth. There's this place I call a front porch in our emotional world where we can listen and consider what we're hearing and take a moment to decide if we're going to let that inside our emotional home, our place of truth. Listening on the porch allows us to respond and responding. It's not the same as reacting, is it? Reacting is how we end up lashing out and running away from people. Responding means considering another person's feelings, showing courtesy even when you don't see truth in what they're saying, not yet anyway, and making an effort to understand the spirit of what they're saying and responding to that. You don't have to fawn and grovel and you don't have to annihilate them. You can say, wow, I, I didn't realize you felt that way. Let me think about that and see if I can improve on that. Now notice all you said was that you'd think about it that you'd see if you could improve. You didn't invalidate them. You didn't collapse emotionally, right? Sometimes during considerations, it's magical. The right words just come to you. So you can be real and tell the truth and still be a caring friend. Those two things, truth and caring, that's what allows friendships to deepen. And that's how healing works. Little changes made over time. So don't give up. With small steps in your overall healing, you can learn to connect better. Better connecting, it's like jet fuel for your overall healing. So it's this positive cycle that just keeps getting better. One thing leads to another. When you do something that makes you feel ashamed and scared of getting caught, yes, you might get away with it, but the real problem is the way it grinds you down. 
your self-esteem, your sense of integrity, your ability to walk through your life standing tall, looking people in the eye, feeling confident when you speak up for yourself in the event that you've been wronged. This is huge for a lot of people with childhood PTSD. You can lose all that good stuff. Maybe you learned growing up to use dodgy behavior around laws and money, and you know the, you thought the world wasn't fair or owed you a break. That's common. Or maybe serious hardship pressed you to do whatever you thought you had to do to get by, earning money illegally or avoiding responsibility for debts. But either way, if your time has come to recover from all the trauma that brought you to this point, a really good thing to do is to face these problems and to get to work solving them. My letter today is from a woman I'll call Kate, and she writes, Dear Anna, I want to ask you a few questions out of sheer terror and desperation for my situation. You're so far the only complex trauma expert mentioning one area of developmental trauma fallout, and that is illegal activity surrounding taxes and other financial issues. I have done these illegal things with finances out of a deep survival instinct surrounding lifelong poverty, plus financial illiteracy, possibly dyscalculia, and impulsivity. Okay, I'm circling with my pencil. And these are things I'll come back to. I'll re I'm going to read your letter all the way through. I'll come back to talk about things I circled. Okay. This has gone on for years. I live on government benefits and in government housing, and I think I may have committed fraud. Aw. My truest self knows I did not intend harm to anybody or programs or institutions. My life is small and quiet. My money goes to basics now. I've curbed a ton of impulsive spending habits. Good. And my truest self knows also I did these things because I truly didn't understand the repercussions. Definitely operating out of dissociation, extreme executive dysfunction, undiagnosed, and many diagnosed difficulties. Okay. My questions for you surrounding this, knowing you're not a legal expert or lawyer, and I am not, in your work, have you seen people stop this behavior and dig themselves out of any resulting legal and financial mess? I have great news for you. Do you recommend going to legal aid for advice? I've not yet been warned or charged, but could be at any moment for years past and for this year too. Truly, I've been in such a state of freeze about the situation for too many years to even know where to begin. I go to a low-income clinic for therapy, but just when I gather the courage to begin, it seems, my therapist at the time leaves the clinic, and I have to begin the long dance toward trust all over again. I don't know where to turn. I apologize for coming to you with things that may be outside your realm of knowledge, but you mentioned tax evasion and other legal troubles for those with CPTSD, um, and that helped me get the courage to ask. For that alone, I'm grateful. Feeling totally alone and helpless in this horrible mess has been one long nightmare. At least I know I'm not the only one who made these same mistakes. In much of my therapy, I work on feeling better about myself, my thoughts, and emotions which is helpful, but if we're doing bad things at the level of possible prosecution and don't know how to stop, how can we be expected to feel we're decent people? That's something I don't see addressed enough. Along with any thoughts you may have, if there are any trauma survivors you know who have gone through something similar, who may be able to provide guidance and support, please let me know. I don't know anybody who has had anything remotely like this in their lives, and that makes everything a thousand times worse. 
Many thanks again for putting your work, expertise, and compassion out into the universe for survivors like me to discover and absorb, especially mentioning the parts other experts don't seem to tackle. Thank you, Kate. That is very kind of you. And um, I didn't know I was the only one talking about it. It seems self-evident to me. I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, you are so not alone with this. Lots and lots of people traumatized and otherwise do this. And I totally hear you with the background of poverty and trauma. You know, you don't learn this stuff at home. There's often a lot of financial desperation. You know, a lot of people would say that it was financial desperation that pushed them to do the worst things they've ever done. For me, I would say the number one thing is loneliness pushed me to do the, do that. But I have my own thing. I'm going to refer everybody at the end of this to a video I have about like a list of ways that the bad stuff sometimes comes out of us. And it's a list that could help anybody who watches it accept themselves. So I'll do that at the end of the video, but stay with me here. I want to talk about what you said. I'm just really with you on this. There totally is help available. So you said that um, you feel terrible about yourself. So you say you have lifelong poverty, financial illiteracy, possible dyscalculia and impulsivity. You sound like you're very, very in touch with what's going on with you and why you struggle. So good for you. You know, it's just, it's actually quite an accomplishment to be able to go to um, publicly assisted therapy. Like, like that's hard to get. And to be able to put that together, you've obviously taken some big steps to take care of yourself. So that's good. That's step one. You talk a lot about your truest self. And um, I don't know, maybe that's a concept that's important to you. I don't know, you might just wanna say I. You, you are your truest self. You are your truest self. You're true. And as, as human beings, we all are capable of doing good things. We all are capable of doing bad things. And when we look around and judge other people, it's usually because we've lost sight that in the other person's shoes, in their situation, with their upbringing, with their DNA, we really don't know that we would be some superior person. No matter how much people think that, that is the definition of arrogance. All right? So nobody gets to judge you for this. Everybody has problems sometime. And what's interesting, I work with a lot of people. I work with people with no money. I work with people with a lot of money. And I would say they all have about the equal amount of trouble with money. I was a welfare kid. And so I know what it is to not have enough money to be safe or okay. That's a thing. That's a thing. But once your basic needs are met, it's just been my observation that we get very troubled about money. So I think that you might be feeling guilty because some of what you've been doing was maybe you had a choice. Maybe you feel that you had a choice and you chose to keep doing the thing. Yeah, well, me and you, you know, we've, I've done all my things. I, um, I had a tax debt once and of all the problems that I have, of all the shady behaviors that I've had, it, for me personally, it hasn't been about money. Like I've been pretty square about that, but I had a tax debt once. And I just want to tell you what happened. Um, I don't know what country you're in. I'm in the U.S. And here it's the Internal Revenue Service. But I had an accountant and um, got my taxes done and sent them in. And this was a very tough financial time for me when I was a single mom. Uh, and I all of a sudden got this bill back like months later for $7,000 or something. $7,000 I totally didn't have. I didn't have enough for my needs already. This money came in. I just about had a heart attack. You know what I did? I called the IRS and to my surprise, they were really nice. They were really nice. That was my experience. I've had to call them a few times with problems or questions 
And sometimes you have to wait a long time to talk to them. Although some, it just sort of depends on the year, what's happening with funding or whatever. But sometimes it's a long hold time. Sometimes you get right in. And especially when you're small potatoes like you and me, they tend to do a very wonderful job of just trying to help you sort something out. You do owe the money and um, you can talk to them and ask them to help you set up a plan for how you can do it. And you can tell them their situ your situation honestly, where you are, you're on public assistance. And um, whatever is available for people, they may help you do that. I do feel that for small potatoes people, like maybe they want to go after high stakes people who evade taxes. But I think for people who are just scraping by, they're more interested in helping you just set everything straight than they are in trying to prosecute you or anything. But the one exception to that would be is if you hide. Running and hiding is um, it's causing you so much stress and low self-esteem. For that reason alone, it's so important. So I had a lot of dodgy behavior in my past and what was really bothering me about it, well, I just felt so bad. I always talk about that, like being able to walk with your head up. There were a lot of things I owed apologies for. I owed some money that I hadn't paid back. And when I started learning my daily practice, I then got this natural desire as you're having right now. I wanted to set it right. And I went and I paid my debts. I talked to people. I apologized for things. I refrained from apologizing even where I had done wrong if I thought that that might hurt people because the person who mentored me was a sober alcoholic woman. I wasn't an alcoholic, but she taught me how alcoholics do it. Like alcoholics have got to clear this stuff up. They've learned in AA because the guilt and the shame and the hiding will drive them to drink again. Like the, their one chance at happiness and thriving is to clear all this stuff up. So I remember when I first heard the technique that they use of making amends, I was just like, oh no, this sounds awful. Or I wanted to run out and like, I wanted to run out and apologize to ex-boyfriends. So it's just an excuse to make contact. But I was told, don't do that. Because actually if they're in a relationship, you know, you could hurt them. You could hurt them and their new partner by just showing up. Hadn't heard that before either. I loved learning from the people in 12-step programs because here was the thing I didn't get either. You, you said you, you know, your, your therapist isn't talking about it. Mine wasn't either. I was doing some egregious stuff. I've talked about it in other videos. And uh, it was hanging out with a woman in, who, who, who was a 12-step person. She was just like, clear it up. You're going to feel better. You need to stand tall. You need to get rid of all this shame. And I had been of this school of thought that like shame was just a thing that other people did to me and I didn't deserve it. And then, you know, I was just kind of gradually came around. I'm like, oh no, I feel ashamed because of like some stuff I did that I don't feel good about. So it's good. It's just kind of like, it means your conscience is actually alive and well and speaking with you. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. You say you have illegal stuff. You mentioned taxes. If it's other things like, I don't know, embezzlement or theft, that could be serious. Here's what I recommend you do. The 12-step program, I haven't been, but I know really terrific people who have thrived there. It's called Debtors Anonymous, D-A. And I think you can Google it and you can find meetings online or in your community. 12-step fellowships, they're free. I think you put a dollar or two in the basket. You know, you don't have to. That's just customary what they do. And that's a place where people get together to solve these problems and get support from each other and they meet regularly. I've, I've known people who did it and they had, um, they called them accountability groups. I think it's a beautiful model. So I don't know, four or five people agree to get together periodically and they all get together and they talk about what did they spend? Where are they in paying down a debt? 
And for you, I would imagine you could tell people, I've got this problem, and people who have dealt with this problem, they will be there, and they'll go, I gotcha, I gotta, this is what I did, I recommend doing it this way, read this book, or go to this website, or I know this resource. You can get help from people who have been there. And I suspect, like, you think you don't know anybody who's had this, but they're in hiding right now. So lots of people have this, it's very common. And it's really noble and beautiful that your, your spirit is moving you to straighten it out. That's really good. I support you 100%. You will feel better. I do think that the, the world is going to accommodate you. If it is some serious crime like embezzlement and you need legal help, then yes, I would say go to legal aid. That is advice for an attorney. I don't know what the problem is and I don't know what the solution is, but I know that facing the problem and getting help for it is a totally positive thing to do. It's time for you to clear this up. And the world tends to respond well to people who show up proactively to solve their problems. You're gonna, I think it's gonna be better than you think. It's gonna be a lot easier on you than all the shame and terror that you've been going through, terror and desperation, you said. So I hope that helps you. If anybody's interested in this, debting and um, dishonest behavior around money is just one aspect of self-defeating behavior. Self-defeating behavior, we all have it in complex PTSD. This is my radical philosophy that you don't get everywhere. I think it's about dysregulation, disconnection from people, and self-defeating behavior. It's those three things. Those are the three like arenas of life where CPTSD plays out. They all get triggered. It goes round and round. If you can change one thing in that circle, you can start to change your CPTSD symptoms and change your life. So for you right now, the thing presenting to your consciousness is I got to straighten out this tax thing whatever else this may be, go for it. Go for it. That would be taking on a self-defeating behavior. You're going to feel so good about yourself. And I think you're going to find it has a healing effect on other things like your tendency to disconnect from people and not relate to them or feel like you're all alone. It's going to have good effects. You don't belong here. That is what my mind used to tell me. And it was a lie. But before my trauma was healed, I used to feel like an unwelcome outsider just about everywhere I went. Do you have this? You start out like with a feeling of hope that that not belonging feeling is caused by, you know, a bad group, a bad person or like snobby people. So you try again. You try to be part of a new group and you try to fit in and belong. But then sooner or later, something in you gets triggered and the same feeling takes over and you feel like you have no choice but to get away from the group. You don't belong here. That is one of eight lies that childhood trauma tries to tell you. And these are forms of trauma-driven thinking. And we know now that these very thoughts are common. They're a totally normal part of complex PTSD. And if you grew up with neglect and abuse, you might relate to what I'm saying. It is such a primal need, right? to be part of the tribe, to be recognized and included, for people to get you. And that's why the belief that we don't belong anywhere is one of the most painful lies that your trauma tells you. It helps if you can just name it. When you name it, you can get a little distance from it. It's like, could it be true that I don't belong here? Hold on, when you name it, you can begin to separate and see what you're saying and realize that your CPTSD is doing some thinking for you and it's very distorted. 
So that was number one. Let's go over the other seven lies. And just in case you're believing any of these lies right now, I want to help you break the spell and come back to what's real. Okay. So the second lie is you are permanently damaged by your trauma and therefore you're never going to get a fair shot at life. Do you ever feel like that? Yes, you do. <laughs> Lots of people feel that way, not just traumatized people. If you grew up uh, with violence going on in the house, with alcoholism and drug addiction, so often that stuff goes along with poverty and shame and this feeling that you have to separate from everybody and you have to hide what's going on at home. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if you think that you're so damaged that you're never going to get a fair shot, it starts to echo across all these like actual experiences where you didn't get a fair shot. Like it wasn't fair that you didn't get to be safe when you were a kid. And it wasn't fair that your parents didn't just like back you a hundred percent and believe in you and, and support you and trying to grow up and become yourself. Like if they antagonize that for you, how are you going to come to believe that you do have a fair shot, that the world is your oyster? This kind of like insidious lie, it, it gets in there really deep. And it can take a lot of work to root it out that you are permanently damaged, which you're not. It certainly causes lasting symptoms. And I'm saying you can heal symptoms and you may never be in mint condition, like how you would have been if, if nothing had ever happened, but that's literally impossible. That's like magical thinking to think that there was a hypothetical you where nothing bad ever happened. You are not permanently damaged. The damage that you're having now is mostly not permanent. You can heal, you can make progress. And actually, if you could take this, there are certain little like bad threads of the CPTSD that show up in your, in, in the way you see the world and in the way you express yourself. If you could change just one or two of those, it could make a profound difference. It could start to make it a lot easier to change the other ones. So let's just take that lie that you're permanently damaged, that you can never get a fair shot. And let's just chuck it out of here. You're going to face a lot of obstacles in your life, but when you face them with some tools to start healing your trauma, it can be a whole different experience than what you've had in the past. All right. So hang in there. All right. Third lie we got to get rid of is that people are out to get you. That's almost never true. And I have to say that out loud because that's one of the lies that really got in there with me is a belief that people actually want the worst for me. When people are kind, they, um, they don't really mean it, that it's self-interested or when they're indifferent, it's because they're against me. One of the biggest things I learned, I went back to a high school reunion some years ago. And when I was in high school, I was kind of like an oddball. I was, I, I was a punk kid. I had the perception that all the popular people, all the preppy kids, all the ones who appeared to me to have it all made, that they had this happy little world and that they didn't want me in it. And by some fluke, like when Facebook came out, I ended up friends with one of the most beautiful and popular girls from my high school which was very unlikely. She was beautiful. She was popular. But once we were both adults, we were just women, you know, we became friends and I made the bold move and I flew to her city and spent the weekend with her one time. And we had a really great time. She was so kind. She made all these gifts for me and she welcomed me and she was so kind. And we spent long hours talking. And first of all, I found out that her high school experience wasn't all perfect. In fact, it was quite traumatic. It may have been um, as bad and in some ways worse than what I had been through. And of course, I had just thought I was the only kid in the world who was going through anything. 
But also, I, she said, you remember those parties we used to have out in the Arroyo? And I said, no, I, I was never invited to those parties. You know, I don't know if you realize this, but I was never included or, or anything. And she said, really? Because we all thought you were really cool and funny and nice, but you always just kind of walked on by. You wouldn't even talk to anybody. I had my eyes opened that there actually was like love and friendship around me, but I couldn't see it yet. I couldn't see it yet because my trauma was telling me this lie that people were out to get me. All right, the fourth lie we got to get rid of is that you better not be too picky and you better just take whatever comes along because it's probably all you're going to get. I think it is like a particular lie that's very common with people who were neglected and it's really bad. And if it gets into your romantic relationships, man, are you going to have a life of trouble? Of course you need to be picky about who you get together with. And the thing that you learn as you have relationships and when you're traumatized and you're working on it and you're working on it and you're trying to get better is that a lot of the trouble starts in the choice you make. And you've probably seen, you know, I have, I have a whole course on dating where I go into this in depth about the, the kind of thinking that leads to bonding with somebody who isn't even who you wanted. Like, you know, getting into the relationship, this isn't the one, this isn't somebody that you really respect, but you get all attached to them that when you're neglected, you have that attachment wound and you're carrying it around. It's like this giant, like super glue thing that just like globs onto people. It doesn't just do it randomly. And I'll be honest with you, what, what causes that bonding to happen real fast without any kind of like foresight is casual sex. All right. But if you're going in and bonding with people before you even know them, there's almost always this period of time where you sort of are coming out of it going, whoa, what have I done? I don't even like this person. But if you have a fear of abandonment, you just hang out in that relationship anyway. You just stay and stay and stay and stay and then like complain and resent and try to change them until finally somebody leaves. And if you have abandonment trauma, it's probably going to be them. And that's the embarrassing thing. It's like you never even like them and you're sitting there like, ah, I got dumped. And um, I'm laughing now, right? But it's really painful when it's happening. So you do get to be choosy. Of course, you need to choose somebody who you think really highly of. There will be more. And as you heal some of the prickly behaviors and the strange like running away from relationships or glomming on too fast, all of those things, those have all been getting in the way of, of developing like a great relationship with the people who come along. When all those symptoms are calmed, when your triggers are calmed, you're going to find that you're a lot more attractive than you used to think. And people are going to take an interest in you. You being yourself without all that fear and kind of push pull, you doing that can be really sexy to people. So don't ever fear. You will have more chances in healing. And I don't care how old you are. I've talked about my friend Gladys here. She died a few years ago. She was this wonderful person in my life. She was a friend's mom and she lived up the street and she looked out for me and she taught me to knit and she taught me to cook and she took me to summer camp and she let me take piano lessons at her house because I didn't have, you know, that kind of means at my house. She was this really good person in my life, but she had this really awful husband and I didn't like him and I didn't feel safe around him. And I reconnected with her some years before she died and she had this incredible news that she had been widowed some years back and she had gotten together with a guy that she had known for a long time. And it ended up being the most incredible, beautiful relationship of her life. And she said she was sorry she stayed so long in this bad relation, this bad marriage with her husband. And that the five years she had with her husband before he passed away at the age of 90, 
those years were by far the happiest years of her life. And she was, she was in her 80s. So never think it's too late. When you become free with yourself and you have less fear, less resentment, less push, less pull, and more joy, you're going to be able to attract and be attracted to someone who totally loves you as you are. So we're going to get rid of that lie. And then we're going to get rid of another lie. And that they kind of go together. And this one, I never hear it talked about, but I sure have it myself. And I'm going to guess that a lot of you have it. And it's this lie that everything is temporary. Like you can never really like commit and choose the house you really want or have the friends you really want or buy the jacket that you really like. You can't do that. That sometime in the future, you're going to be in your real life and you'll be able to get the thing you really want. But right now you just get some temporary thing that doesn't really fit and you don't really like it. And it doesn't really reflect you. Am I the only one who has that? Everything is temporary. And so part of my healing is to start to understand and experience that as much as I felt like people have let me down in terms of their commitment to me, like my, my mother, um, you know, my first husband, uh, people I dated, certain friends, that people had let me down in their commitment to me. I had never really made a commitment to anything. I never really committed to a person, a friend, a job. You know, I always had kind of like one foot out the door. I always kept myself sort of hold, held apart from that. And I think that is coming from a similar place as the lie that I don't belong. But there's like this thinking like that somewhere out there, there's this place where I do belong and then I can buy the jacket and I'll find the house. And I'm learning like no time like the present. You might as well have something you like right now. And anyway, you know, one day that whatever jacket you have, it's going to wear out and you're going to get another jacket and that one can suit you on that day. So we begin to make commitments and that's what counters that lie. All right. You want to get rid of another lie? Here's one for you. Your negative experiences prove that your fears are true. <laughs> so you go through life thinking, you know what? I think that secretly I'm really unlovable. I think that I'm really like not even like other people. And if anybody knew who I really was, they wouldn't even want to be with me. Then out of that place, when that lie is driving you, who do you get together with? You get together with like whoever you get together with temporary person. And then guess what? They don't accept you. They don't accept you. You haven't shown who you really are. You haven't been like kind of like vibrating and shining at the personality you actually have. Maybe you people please, or maybe you put up a tough exterior, but no one falls in love with your people pleasing. That is not even lovable. What's lovable is your real self. And it's not crazy to think that it's not safe to be your real self when your real self still has a whole bunch of activated trauma and that every time you get your feelings hurt, maybe you lash out or you, you know, run away for three days. Yeah. You, it's not safe to show your real self. Then your healing has got to be like the place you start. You can't just say, I'll find a great relationship and then I'll heal. I do think that certain relationships have worked some magic on people from time to time, but I wouldn't bank on it. I would get to work on your healing right now. And just remember like the relationships you get into, you know, when love comes to town and you feel that mutual like thing coming up of, you know, <laughs> you're feeling that heart connection with somebody, that heart connection is always going to be built upon like where you are now in your healing and where they are. 
And there's going to be some kind of a match there that even makes it a viable relationship. So the more you kind of come up in your own healing, the more your heart is going to connect with people who are also kind of somewhere in that range. And that's what you want. That's what you want. You want to be getting together with people who are up here with you. And that's a very positive thing for your healing when somebody does that. So you may have heard me talk before that one of the signs, if you're dating somebody and you're wondering like, is this the person I want to marry? One sign to look for is, does their very presence in your life sort of call you up? Does it cause you to desire naturally to kind of just come up a level? That's a very good sign about somebody. And if you're like me, you know exactly what it's like to have the opposite, to be with somebody where it kind of like you start becoming your worst self and then you even go down another level. And next thing you know, it's like, you're like, this isn't even me. I don't even know how I got this way. And you have to leave the relationship to change. Well, conversely, there are people who are really good for you and you want to be ready for them and you get ready by doing your healing. All right. Seventh lie. You ready? I think you're going to like getting free of this one. It is the lie that tells you that you need to stay angry because if you're not angry, you will be defenseless in the world. You'll have nothing to protect you. Now, when I say that, and I tell you that I used to operate that way, I think it's easy to see like, well, that's a bad way to live your life. But ask yourself in some way, are you doing that? Are you holding on to the stuff that makes you mad? the resentment that you had, the identity of somebody who's very, very hurt. And I know you were very hurt. Like that isn't, that's not a lie. You were hurt. You were traumatized. It's not your fault. But are you letting that be your identity and holding on to it as if being angry and hurt is going to protect you from having it happen again? The irony of it is that when you're walking around identified as a person who's abused, it it does tend to happen again. It's a weird little magnet effect. It does tend to happen again. And it's a lot of work to start like growing your identity to, to, to something a little better than that, to somebody who has been hurt and who has healed the wound. That's a much better place to come from. And then you start to be oriented towards healing and you start making friends who are also real, like really into like healing and people who get it about you and they know what you've been through and they're really supportive of you. And you're in some situation where something is upsetting to you it's so good to have friends who are like, oh, I know this situation is hard for you. Let me hang out with you. I'll walk with you to the car. That's what you need. That's what you need. It's possible that in the future, you're not going to have to deal with these painful moments all by yourself. That through an iterative process of healing, a little here, a little here, a little here, you're going to start having more support in your life. All right. And you won't need your anger to protect you. You know what you're going to have? You're going to have friends, but even more importantly, you're going to have boundaries. <laughs> and they're this great alternative to anger and defensiveness. A boundary. I've been talking about that a lot in videos lately. So sometimes naturally CPTSD people get confused. We get confused because what is a boundary? And we think it's when we go, I need you to not talk about that topic because it triggers me. Okay. That's not a boundary. That is a demand. Now you can phrase it as a request, but what I want to clarify for you is what the boundary is, is that if you, if you ask somebody and say, I don't want you to talk about that. I don't want you to talk about that. I don't want you to talk about that, that your boundary is the point when you walk away from that person. Early in your recovery, you're going to have crazy boundaries. You're going to have like gorilla boundaries. They're just like, you know, here, 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 here. You can always tell somebody who's kind of early in the process. They're like putting up boundaries and the boundaries are a little bit 
rough, right? They're a little bit hard on people. They're a little bit outsourcing responsibility to other people, but better you should err on that side than to have no boundaries. Like it's okay in your early recovery that it's a bit messy, that you're a bit ambitious. I would call that the adolescence of your healing when you're just, you know, oh, you're just getting free and you're just saying stuff and it's all, it's all positive. And if you stick with it, it'll start smoothing out to where you don't even have to tell people how they need to behave because you've actually learned to calm your triggers. Very rarely are you going to have to have an expectation of somebody else or a requirement that they be a certain way. You still get to do that, but it's going to be less often. You're not going to have to outsource that responsibility to them. You can relax. You can relax and you can hang out with people who maybe aren't the kind of people you would have hung out with before. I still have certain situations where I would never want to be in again. I don't want to be in a situation like I never again want to be in a car that feels out of control. Okay. That's a boundary. You know what my boundary is? Get out of the car. And I did that recently. I got out of the car. It was very upsetting to everybody, but the fact was never again do I want to be in a moving car totally afraid of the way somebody's driving. It's not, it's not something I'm going to let happen again if I can help it. What I had a hard time with in getting out of that car was doing it without doing an adolescent boundary of just like, blah, 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 you know, yelling about it. Um, so it wasn't very graceful at first, but I was able to wrap it up later. And the thing was, at least I got out of the car. At least I got out of the car. And sometimes that's what healing is. You know, the first order of business is to do the thing that is crucial for you to do. And you worry about kind of smoothing it out with everybody later. It's a good memory on top of a bad memory of just remembering like all the little moments when I got free enough to like take care of myself. All right, the last lie that I'm going to talk about in this video is, oh, and it's painful to say, this is a lie that presents itself as something very nice, but it's a lie. And it's that somebody will eventually come along and save you. Do you have that? Oh, I totally had it. And oh, that lie set me up for so much like grief and disappointment. I went through a lot of hard times when my kids were little. Their dad and I split up when they were very small. I didn't have enough money. Then I had all these medical problems and I really, really, really needed somebody to save me. And at one point I thought somebody had come along to save me and they, they, they were like, I'll save you. I'll take care of everything. And they turned out to actually be a very bad person. And I was vulnerable to that. That didn't work out. And in the pain that I had after that, I had to face this fact that actually not only was that person never going to save me and not only had, you know, my ex-husband not saved me, but that actually no one was ever going to come along and save me, that that was a fantasy. It was probably a projection of my like baby self waiting for a parent to come and pick me up. Who knows? I won't try to overanalyze it but it was really hard to root out that, that fantasy. It was a pleasant fantasy. It was always like, someday I'll have somebody I can talk to about everything that's happened to me. I mean, I really thought that. And I have this really nice marriage right now, but one of the painful adjustments when we were first married and in the early part of our relationship was that even though I had been through a lot of hard times and they were over, like talking about what happened, always felt a little weird. Like it wasn't like the fantasy of like there, you know, it's all over now and it's never going to happen again. Like nothing he could say or do ever gave me that feeling. And I went through this rough patch where I was, I was angry and disappointed and kind of like the stages of grief. Like surely there's, surely there's some other option. There's something that he should say that would give me that feeling. 
And for me, the feeling ultimately came through my spirituality. And if you're a spiritual person, you may know what I'm talking about, that there are some things that if it didn't happen when you were a baby, like no human is ever going to be able to give that to you. They can give you a lot. I have a, this like lovely, stable life with a man I love, but no one is saving me. And I developed a new vision of what that's like. So in addition to my faith, making me feel safe and knowing that, that ultimately I'm okay and I'm cared for and that all my troubles are known, that I'm not alone with them, that also I have this safety and freedom in that I know how to deal with the harsh feelings that come up. And that is my wish for you, is that as you remove all of these lies from your consciousness about being no good and not belonging and needing to be angry and, and needing to be saved, that what's left after that is a peaceful confidence that no matter what happens, you're going to know what to do. You're going to know what to do. And these are the tools that I teach are the ones that will help you know what to do, that will help you deal with harsh emotions when they come up, how to, how to deal with it when you've gotten yourself into a situation where you've said something terrible and you want to back out of it and you want to apologize. These are the, thing, the things that I'm always teaching in the videos and in my courses. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, Think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.